Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to Behind the Knife. This is Patrick Georgeoff. We've got a great episode for you today. This is the first of two colorectal mock oral board episodes from our friends at the Colorectal Surgery Education Series. Now to be clear, these are fellow level scenarios not intended for the general surgery oral boards. We've got two cases today and two more on our next episode. If you like what you hear, be sure to check out www.crsvirtualed.org. For more information, again, that's crsvirtualed.org for more information. You can also watch this episode on our brand spanking new website. Check it all out at www.behindthenife.org. Again, that's behindthenife.org. That's our same address. It's our previous website. We are thrilled with the new website. Uh, We are finally able to host all our content in one place. And everything is organized. It's easily searchable, including podcasts and videos which you can also check out by topic or by series. And we are now offering 100% free Category 1 CME credits for doctors, nurses, and advanced practice providers. All you have to do is listen to a single episode, answer two of three multiple-choice questions correct, and voila, you have a free CME credit. Go to the website and check it all out, and don't miss our hot new merch. One other important announcement to go along with these stellar colorectal mock orals is that we've been working hard putting together the most premier of premier general surgery oral board review series, including over 120 super high quality mock oral cases recorded in an entirely unique fashion to maximize learning and retention. Release date is going to be early 2022. Thanks for listening. Now uh, enjoy these mock orals. All right. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to a special event um, of our colorectal surgery virtual education series. Um, Today with our colleagues from Behind the Knife, we'll be hosting our CRS uh, mock oral boards. A quick shout out to our partners from Behind the Knife. They have a brand new website with lots of additional oral board prep, um, and they'll be actually releasing a comprehensive mock oral board series uh, early next year. Uh, My name is Rishi Batra. I'm a colorectal fellow at Mayo Clinic, and I'm part of the leadership committee for the CRS virtual education series. I'll have some of my colleagues on the leadership uh, committee also introduce themselves, and then we'll get going with our mock orals. Um, We'll introduce our examiners, Dr. Keller and Dr. Kleiman, and then we'll have our two examinees, examinee one and examinee two, get going with our um, event today. Hi, good evening. My name is Jennifer Miller O'Keefe, I'm also on the leadership committee. I'm a fellow at University Hospitals in Cleveland. Thank you to all of those who are participating in the session. We really appreciate it. And thank you to Behind the Knife for disseminating this to more people. Hey, guys, I'm Ben Goff. I'm also one of the members of the committee. I'm currently one of the fellows down at Baylor University Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. And again, just like Jen said, I want to thank everybody for their ongoing commitment and collaboration with this. And last but not least, I'm Poonam Parikh. I'm also from Baylor University. I'm one of the current colorectal fellows there. Thanks for everyone for joining. Perfect. Thank you again to our two guest examiners, Dr. Keller and Dr. Kleiman. Um, Dr. Keller is a colorectal surgeon at UC Health um, Davis, and she's a clinical assistant professor and surgical scientist at UC Davis. She did medical school at Rutgers, followed by general surgery at Temple University, and then colorectal surgery fellowship at Baylor University. Um, Dr. Kleiman is a colorectal surgeon at Leahy Hospital and Medical Center and is assistant professor of surgery at Tufts University School of Medicine. He attended medical school at Rutgers 
um, did general surgery at Cornell and went on to complete a colorectal surgery fellowship at New York Presbyterian, Cornell, and Columbia. Um, thank you again to our examiners for taking time out of their busy schedule. And thank you to our examinees, examinee one and examinee two for joining us today. With that, we'll um, hand it over to Dr. Keller and Dr. Kleiman. Thank you so much. So Dr. Kleiman and I just wanted to say a couple of words about the oral boards in general. First, thank you all for coming on. It's just important to do cases again and again and again as you prepare for it. Um, it'll be fresh in your mind and it will get you into the mindset of doing it. From my point of view, um, practice is the biggest thing that you can do for these. Practice out loud, listening to what you're saying. Um, trust your knowledge base. You're all well-trained. Be succinct in your answers. Don't say too much and be ready for the scenario to change because it's not just answering the question correctly. It's answering the question correctly and then stopping on a dime because they will change it. And what if this, and what if this, and what if this, and then answer the question that you're asked and stop talking. I think that that's an art that you have to master, but you're never going to know what the examiner picks up on from what you're saying. So just answer the question and stop. Be mindful of your body language. I know that these are virtual now, but still dress for the exam, look as professional as you can be, have good cadence, keep eye contact, and be aware of your posture and your breathing, and know that no one feels good about their test after they take it. So Dave, anything to say? Great. Thanks, Deb. Uh, good evening, everyone. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, thanks again to the organizers of this great series for, uh, for organizing this and for inviting us to participate. It's such a great, uh, <clears throat> a great series that's come out of a dark time in medicine uh, that arose during the, the um, darkest time of the COVID pandemic last year. And it's been, been such a joy to see that it's continued uh, beyond that uh, into this year, too. So, um, so really, thank you for putting this together. Um, you know, Deb gave great advice. Um, I'll just add a couple of my own pieces of advice of things that I've noticed um, over the last couple of years of, of doing these mock worlds. Um, and I kind of like keeping things in threes. So I put together my top three pieces of advice that, um, that I think um, would hopefully help you. The first is to relax and to think the way you would think on any given workday. Uh, if you, you really want to try to put yourself in the mindset of like you're in your clinic and you're about to go in with a new patient or you're on call and your fellow is calling you, um, presenting a case to you, um, what is it that you would want to hear from that fellow? Um, what, what's the information that you think is important? If you're a fellow now and you're not used to thinking like an attending, think about you were about to present the case to your attending and what would you say to them? Um, and it just kind of really put yourself in that mindset. Um, and I think that'll really help put you at ease and let you think the way you normally would on any given day. The second is remember your orderly workup. Okay, just think in your mind that there's a set order of how to go through the workup of a patient. And this is med student stuff, history and physical, um, labs, imaging, colonoscopy, and then what surgery do you want to do? And every one of those steps is important to remember, especially that colonoscopy. It's so easy to get nervous and forget to ask for that. And that's an easy thing that the examiners will be looking for. But just keep that framework in your mind and just go through in a very neat and orderly way um, so you don't forget anything. And the third is everybody should practice talking through a surgery in under 30 seconds. And there's only so many surgeries that they will ask you about. So go through the common ones and just rehearse. How would you explain your technique for all of these common surgeries? Um, 
If you don't practice that ahead of time, then you'll wind up stuttering and saying things like, well, I'll begin by making a 10 millimeter incision around the umbilicus. That's not what they're looking for. What they're looking for is just a very succinct way of what are the important steps of the operation and can you explain it in a way that I think that you know how to do this. Um, and so practice that and it should really take you under 30 seconds. I think if you do those three things, plus what Deb says, that's already 80% of the battle. The knowledge is there. Um, and as you're preparing to take the exam, uh, it's really just a technique thing to, to execute it effectively. All right. So with that, um, I guess we'll get into it. Um, so the format that um, Deborah and I decided would be best for this would be uh, we have two examinees who have graciously volunteered. Um, what we decided to do is we'll do two scenarios for each examinee um, and then we'll pause um, and give feedback after those two scenarios and then we'll switch to the second examinee, do two scenarios and then pause and give feedback. Um, and then uh, Deborah and I will alternate who's examining and who's taking notes. Um, and then that'll get us through four scenarios. And then depending on how much time we have, we have some extra ones at the end uh, to round out the hour if there's extra time. Without any further ado, let's go into the first case. So examining one, we are not using any names, um, but uh, I see, there we go. Here you are examining one. So you're gonna go first and I'll be the examiner. Are you ready? All right. All right. So, um, is that anyone? You are in the emergency room and you get called uh, by the ER physicians that there is a 65 year old male who is there with bright red blood perrectum. Uh, he um, passed about three cups of blood before presenting to the ER. He denies any abdominal pain and, the, and it just started this morning. And they called you and asked you to come see the patient. Great. So, I'd go to the bedside, make sure that the monitor is on. Um, get a set of vitals, make sure he has two large bore IVs and a set of labs, including type and screen. Okay, um, so his vitals, um, he's on the monitor, his heart rate is 110, his blood pressure is 100 over 80, and his respirations are 12. He's a febrile. Okay, and so I'd obtain a little more history, ask about any anticoagulation medications, any comorbidities. Um, when this started, if this happened before, if he's had any prior colonoscopies. Perfect. Okay. So um, it just started this morning. He's never had this happen before. Uh, it's never had any blood like this before. Um, he is not on any anticoagulants. He's otherwise a pretty healthy male and um, he's never had a colonoscopy. Okay. Um, also would ask um, briefly uh, family history as well as surgical history medications, and then move on to the physical exam, focusing on the abdomen and also a digital rectal exam with endoscopy. So um, he's never had surgery before. Family history is unremarkable. Uh, your physical exam is pretty unremarkable. Normal abdomen, no tenderness, no surgical scars noted. Digital rectal exam. Um, on digital exam, you notice some dark blood on your finger. Uh, there's no palpable masses. Uh, you put your anoscope in, but you can't really see much. There's just a bunch of dark blood in there. Okay. So I would send off a CBC, BMP, and... Based on that, we'll see whether, if he continues to be stable, um, if I can do a CT angiogram, um, looking at what his baseline creatinine is as well. So what's your differential at this point? Um, so this is a GI bleed. We don't know the source. Um, actually, with bright red, uh, if this is darker blood, actually, before we send him off to the CAT scanner, I would make sure that he has an NG tube in, um, take a look at the bilious uh, drainage or not. Um, this could be a GI bleed, whether it's upper GI bleed or 
lower GI bleed, diverticulosis, hemorrhoidal bleeding, uh, peptic ulcer disease, or it could be an occult mass as well. He's never had a colonoscopy. Okay. Um, so uh, your labs come back. His hemoglobin is 10.5. Uh, the rest of his BMP are normal. Your typing cross is off. Uh, you have two large border IVs. So what would you like to do next? Um, so with him being stable, I would try to get him um, uh, set up for a colonoscopy. Um, I don't think he's actively bleeding at this time, so CTA may not be evident of the active bleeder. Okay. Um, so do you want to prep him or do an unprep colonoscopy? What would you like to do? Um, I would like to do a, a quick prep, including, um, you know, go lightly through the NG tube and try to get the colonoscopy done within 24 to 48 hours. Okay. Um, so you do that. You admit him. He gets some fluids. You prep him. He makes it through the prep okay. He gets his colonoscopy the next day, and you find diverticula, mostly in the sigmoid and descending colon, but there's a few scattered diverticula in the ascending and transverse colon. You do see some blood in the transverse, descending, and sigmoid colon, as well as the rectum, um, but the terminal ileum looks normal, and there's no evidence of blood proximal to the uh, ileocecal valve. Uh, you don't see any obvious bleeding source, and there's no masses identified. Okay, so um, we'll monitor him and see if he can continue to resolve the bleed um, spontaneously. Okay, so um, that night he passes some more dark red blood for rectum. You get a repeat CBC as hemoglobin is eight. So I would continue with uh, blood transfusion. And at this time, with uh, concern for active bleeding, even though I think this is all coming from the sigmoid, I may get a CTA to confirm that as well. Okay, um, you want to get a CTA now? Um, you said his vital signs were stable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, and that can CTA. be done properly. CTA is normal. Okay. Um, so, so next, oh, sorry, go ahead. So I monitor him with um, Q, four-hour hemoglobin checks and see how much blood he is requiring uh, for resuscitation to maintain his hemoglobin. And during this time, I'd also discuss with the patient that the possibility that um, I think this is uh, a sigmoidal bleeding likely due to diverticulosis. And if we can't control it uh, with conservative measures that he may need to have a segmental collection. Okay, um, so the next day, um, he suddenly passes three consecutive bowel movements with bright red blood. Um, his heart rate is 110, his pressure is 100 over 65. Um, so similarly, I would make sure he's resuscitated at this time. I will, again, um, discuss with the patient that um, I think we need to go ahead with a segmental colectomy to get control of the bleeding. Okay. All right, and you're going to go talk to him, and then they call a uh, rapid response on him. He's now heart rate of 140, and his pressure is 80 over 50. Okay, so um, again, at this time, um, we would have to do the ATLS protocol, uh, make sure he's resuscitated with blood products. Uh, he may need pressure support. Uh, make sure okay. he has a full. And then what? Um, if he is. Um, we're not able to keep up with the resuscitation and um, he would need to go to the OR, um, make sure he has okay. good central access. And what surgery do you plan on doing? Because of our uh, previous studies showing more left-sided disease, I would proceed with a, a left colectomy, including sigmoid descending colon. Okay. And then uh, what's your plan in terms of anastomosis, no anastomosis? 
Uh, depends on if he is able to recover his hemostatic stability. If he is stable, then I would consider primary anastomosis. If he's continuing to be deteriorating on pressures, then I would uh, do an end colostomy. Okay. I think that's eight minutes. So, um, Deb, you want to do the next case? Yes. Okay. Examining one. You have a 42-year-old obese male who had mild left lower quadrant discomfort for about two months and comes into the emergency department complaining about pain. He has no significant past medical history, no significant past surgical history, no family medical history. Questions to ask him? Um, so I'd ask him when this all started, how would he characterize it? Is it related to diet? Um, has he had any changes to his bowel habits? Um, has he had any significant weight loss or other urinary dysfunction as well? Okay. Um, he gets the pain after eating, sometimes after eating fatty foods. He has a pretty poor diet, hard for him to tell. It is a crampy pain. It's basically in the left lower quadrant. Sometimes it's relieved with bowel movement. Sometimes it's not. There's intermittently some blood in his stool, no dysuria. His bowel function is unchanged. Regular full bowel movements every morning at least um, and never had issues before. Just pretty constant for the last two months on and off. Okay, and also want to confirm that he's not taking any over-the-counter medications or any other illicit drugs? Nope, no okay. over-the-counter medications, no okay. illicit drugs. And oh, never had a colonoscopy, FYI. Okay. okay, so we're in the clinic, correct? Just we're in the emergency department. Oh, okay. So in this um, scenario, then I proceed with a physical exam, make sure I do a thorough abdominal exam looking for any hernias as well as lymphadenopathy and do a, a thorough digital rectal exam with anoscopy. Abdomen soft, non-distended, really non-tender at this point. Uh, digital rectal exam reveals nothing abnormal. No blood on your finger. Okay, and uh, vital signs were stable. Vital signs were stable. That's right. Okay. Um, so because of the acuity of this, um, first off, I've sent labs, the CBC, BMP, um, and also because of the acute nature of this pain, I would proceed with getting a CAT scan of the abdomen pelvis with view and IV contrast. Okay. The CAT scan comes back. He's got diverticulosis. Uh, there is no inflammatory stranding. There is no free air. Uh, it's pretty much scattered throughout all of his sigmoid. His labs are essentially normal. His white count is 10. What's your differential? So this could be um, diverticular disease causing the symptomatic um, you know, constipation or a mild diverticulitis that's not detected by CAT scan. He could have an infectious colitis, um, constipation. Well, we, we haven't really ruled out a malignancy, so that's always in the differential. Um, he's somewhat young for his age as well, so um, any other inflammatory bowel diseases or colitis um, is also in my differential. Okay. And again, the scan looked relatively normal with no inflammatory stranding except for some diverticuli. So what do you tell the patient you're going to do at this point? He tells you he, he's had this crampy pain, but he feels pretty much better. Um, I would um, counsel him for making sure he has a low fiber diet um, at this time because there's no acute signs of um, infection. I would not give him any antibiotics um, and I would set him up for an outpatient colonoscopy. Okay. 
And do you tell him he has diverticulitis or diverticulosis? Um, I would say that based on the CAT scan, um, it may be underlying diverticular diverticulosis that is causing his symptoms, but we can't tell yet until we have a confirmatory colonoscopy. Okay. So he leaves the ER, no antibiotics. He tries to do a low fiber diet. He tries to set up an appointment for a colorectal surgeon. They're booked weeks and weeks out. Now returns to the emergency department about six weeks later with fevers up to 103, chills and an increase in the left lower quadrant pain. Now he also has dysuria and blood in his bowel movements. Okay. Uh, so at this time, I would, again, make sure he has the appropriate uh, monitoring. Um, his appropriate he has appropriate access. And I would repeat the CAT scan um, after confirming that his uh, creatinine is stable for contrast. CAT scan of the abdomen pelvis. Would elevated creatinine stop you from giving IV contrast? Um, it depends on the baseline, if it's like, you know, baseline is normal. And if it's twice that, then I would not give IV contrast. Okay. His CBC shows that his white count is 21. Uh, there's a left shift. There are dots of free air under the upright chest x-ray that you got. Uh, CAT scan shows that he has inflammatory stranding, uh, perforation with some free air. Um, and a large abscess in his pelvis. Okay. And at, at this time, I'm sorry, his abdominal exam, is he peritonitic with this, these findings? So he's not peritonitic. Okay. And he has an abscess on the CAT scan. How are you going okay. to treat that? So first off, I make sure he's on broad spectrum antibiotics. Um, I will uh, review the findings with him, given the large amount of um, abscess and air in it. I would he just tell has him that he has a large abscess. So like, he says, am I going to surgery or am I not going to surgery? So if he's stable um, at this time, then, you know, we could start off with doing an interventional radiology guided drain placement um, based on his response. Um, I would counsel him that if he can recover from this with the drain, then he has a less likelihood of requiring a Hartman's procedure, but if he gets worse um, with a septic response, then we would have to proceed for Hartman's. So it's just Hartman's or drain? Um, again, given the amount of fecal and pus contamination, I would have to make that decision in the OR and also about his... He has an abscess. Is there a cutoff on the size of the abscess that would push you to drain versus just antibiotics? Mm. Well, so if it's greater than four centimeters, then an IR drain is feasible. If it's less than that, then they can't usually okay. get it. So it was eight by six by four centimeters. And initially he went in for drainage, uh, felt significantly better. The next day he asked when he's going home. Do you leave the drain or do you take the drain out? I would leave the drain in and um, I would make sure that he completes a 14 day course of antibiotics. And I'd see him back in the clinic. Okay, so you discharge him, and when do you want him to come back and have a colonoscopy? Well, so um, for this gentleman, again, he's perforated before having a full colonoscopy, so theoretically I would wait at least eight weeks before um, we can try to do another colonoscopy as long as the perforation site heals. Okay, and when do you take the drain out? 
Um, I would have him measure the outputs per day, but generally it would be, again, guided by the output less than 30 cc's a day. Usually it takes a couple weeks. Same patient. When you see him in the ER, he has peritonitis on exam. His abdomen is rigid. He can't move from all of the pain. There's a larger amount of air. How would this patient be treated? This patient would go emergently to the operating room after he has full resuscitation and respiratory antibiotics started. Okay. Um, and what's I the procedure? Proceed with a Hartman's. Hartman's procedure. Okay. Now, is there okay. a point Great. where that's, you- that's time? Okay. Great. All right. Deep breath. Well done. Well done. All right. So um, let's. Um, let's back up and we'll go back over the first case. Um, Deb, you want to give some feedback? Yeah. So I think that you did great with the first case. Um, be prepared that if they say that the patient has no history, just move on. Don't keep asking questions about the history. It was great that when you first examined the patient, you did a digital rectal exam. Um, that might be something that they would automatically fail you for if you didn't check that. Um, when you did labs at first for a GI bleed, you didn't do a type and cross. I would pay some attention to that detail. And with the NG tube, do a lavage. Don't just put a tube in. Um, great that you asked about colonoscopy, which he hadn't had, and did your differential diagnosis. Cancer was in that. That's also a good sign. Um, you went right to a scope instead of imaging, which may be questionable. Um, you might want to think about that. Uh, it's also a little bit controversial if you need to prep a patient with bleeding because blood is a great cathartic. You might be able to just scope the patient and uh, use irrigation if needed. And then you also mentioned that you were transfusing the patient when he came in with a hemoglobin of 10 and then went to an 8. When you talked about the procedure that you were going to do, you mentioned doing a segmental resection or a sigmoid. When a patient's bleeding, you want to do a total abdominal colectomy. You don't want to leave anything behind. And again, you want to make sure that you are checking the rectum and making sure that this isn't a hemorrhoidal bleed. At least once a year at major centers, you hear patients get a total abdominal colectomy for hemorrhoidal bleeding. And that's sort of a never event that keeps happening. But in general, you had great cadence. You had good eye contact. You had you know, good body language. You're going to get more confident with your answers the more you answer and do these scenarios. So I think you did a great job. Yeah, I agree. Um, you, you did great. I'll just put a, a couple more comments on that one before going on to the next. Um, I really liked the order in which you thought through things from the very beginning. Um, going back to my initial comments on the advice, I think you you got that. Uh, you you asked good history questions, good physical. You you didn't miss the rectal exam. You didn't miss the colonoscopy. All that stuff was really really good. Um, you do want to talk, think about pacing and timing a little bit because I think it takes you a little bit too long to ask for those things, and you spent a little bit three minutes. Three minutes. Too much, right? Too much time focusing on that early on stuff before getting to the meat and bones of the case, and that the same went for the second case as well. Um, and, and you'll get that with more practice, but also in the real life boards, um, your first room, you're going to be a little bit uneasy and it's very easy to just not really be in your rhythm yet until the second room or the third room, maybe. And then you get into it, you get it more down. Um, so that's kind of realistic that you're feeling a little bit uneasy right now. 
Um, and, but just keep that in mind. You want to be in that boom, boom, boom kind of a mode so that you can get into the meat and potatoes of the case, which you didn't really have time for, especially in Deb's case. There was a lot more of the scenario we didn't get to, uh, but we'll come back to that in a minute. Um, I agree completely. The, the surgery you did at the end was not the right answer for this particular case because by the time I asked you what surgery you would do, the patient was markedly unstable. Um, heart rate was 140, pressure was 80 over 50. Um, and in that scenario, I think you were still kind of thinking a little bit, your mind was in the more stable scenario, um, but the scenario changes on you. So it changed. And I think your mind was still a little bit set in when he was stable, when you gave that answer. And you said, if he's still stable, I would do an anastomosis. If he's unstable, I would do an ileostomy or, or a Hartman. And um, I already told you he was unstable. So you don't want to miss that. Um, with that, with those exceptions, you did a really, really good job with that one. So we'll move on to the next case. So next case, very similar feedback. Um, I think you took too long getting through the history at the beginning. And when then she switched the scenario to him coming back, um, you spent a lot of time on history, what labs you were getting, IV access, antibiotics and things, um, where all of that should really be in a sentence or two and then move on to the next thing. Um, one thing that I find really helps in that scenario is recap or summarize. Um, so let's say she gives you the scenario and says, he's now back here, he's febrile, he has peritonitis, the CT scan shows this. Say, okay, it sounds like he's now represented with complicated diverticulitis with perforation and abscess. The way I would manage this is to give antibiotics, get labs, examine him, and if there's a drainable abscess, send him to IR if he's not frankly peritoneal. And that covers a lot in like one sentence. And I think that's something that can be really helpful uh, when they switch the scenario on you. Verbalize the, the, the recap of what they just did to you. Also going to put off your examiners because you have now taken away several of the things that they could throw at you unexpectedly. And if there's something that they disagree with, they'll stop you. They'll say, no, but I didn't say that. Instead, you're showing them that you have everything checked all your I's dotted and T's crossed and you have plans. And it's also great to just verbalize what you're thinking uh, so that they know what you're thinking. And, um, you know, and then uh, that just, that makes them more confident in you, um, which instantly puts you in their favor and are more likely to get a pass, uh, even if you miss something smaller along the way. So um, you did miss the physical exam, you caught yourself. And you went on to the CAT scan, I think, and then said, oh, wait, what was the exam like again? Um, so that and that's OK to do. You are allowed to recognize that you missed as long as you're still within that scenario. If you went back, if you went on to the next scenario, you cannot go back and say, oh, my God, I forgot the exam on the last patient. Of course, I would have examined them too late. The book is closed on that. So uh, you did go back and you asked for it, which is fine. So if you make that mistake, don't be afraid to say it. That's okay. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's all the comments I had. Do you have any other comments for her? Yeah, I would say that if you are taking too long, your examiner might push you along. And I pushed you along there. I mean, we have the Baylor fellows on the phone. Just imagine waking Dr. Fleshman up in the middle of the night. It's that same feeling. It's, I want to know this. I want to know this. I want to know this. Tell me what I need to know. Don't tell me anything else. Mm. You also mentioned a couple times that you were just going to do a Hartman's procedure on the patient. 
we are colorectal surgeons. We are not general surgeons. There is a time for Hartman's procedure, but it's not an absolute. And you can do a primary anastomosis on patients, even if they're perforated, even if there's a small amount of contamination. You can also do a primary anastomosis and a diverting lupuliostomy. Much less morbidity for the patient and for you when you go back. So just keep that in mind. Until next time, dominate the day. 